Welcome to A World Where Living Works, stories of science and survival, bringing together our heads and our hearts to build a suicide-safer world. Talking openly about suicide is so important, but we also recognise that listening to this series may bring up some tough emotions. If so, please talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you are feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. You're listening to A World Where Living Works, and I'm your host, Kim Borodale. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of the beautiful lands, wherever you're listening. I'd also like to acknowledge everyone out there who's been impacted by suicide. The pain it brings to our lives, but also the desire to make positive change for all of us to live well. Today, I'm talking with Richard Ramsey, co-founder of Living Works. This is the sixth and final episode in season three of A World Where Living Works a season focused on learning about the history and evolution of their groundbreaking suicide first aid training practices. We know Living Works today as a global leader in suicide intervention. Thousands of trainers in workplaces and communities around the world teaching gold-class suicide first aid programs, like the two-day assist workshop, the half-day Safe Talk Suicide Alert Helper Workshop, and now the 90-minute online interactive introduction to suicide first aid, Living Works Start, These are programs that have been endorsed in more than 50 peer-reviewed journals around the world that have informed international policy and are implemented everywhere from schools to military bases, hospitals to sports clubs and everything in between. In the last episode, we talked about the Train the Trainer community development model and how trainers around the world work with different environments and cultures while maintaining the fidelity of the Living Works model. Today, I'd like to wrap up the series talking about some of Richard's proudest Living Works moments. What have you been most proud of since starting? What have you got home and been most buzzed to tell your family about about (laughs) what's really excited you in that time or surprised you? They don't want to hear any more of it. Yeah, (laughs) no. (laughs) (laughs) They're sick of it. They're sick of it. They're like, retire already. Yeah. Well, I think the the big thing from the training side of it is the... um, power of the word of mouth that moved it into all these other different kinds of places and the ability, which still kind of amazes us in many ways, that the original scripting of what we saw as important in the training has remained intact. The cultural adaptations, whether it's the filming or building it into an eye assist or the Inuit one, If you dig underneath, you'll see that it's the same kind of common language that's being expressed. And to have that hold for 40 years is uh, really, for me, quite remarkable that we had been able to do that when our vision originally was basically the province of Alberta. That's who we were working for. (laughs) To have it go anywhere beyond wasn't in our minds at that point. That's the practical application side. The other side is the policy side. And we were quite lucky to, especially Brian Tanney and I, to be invited by the United Nations to convene people from around the world to write 
the national strategy suicide prevention guidelines for the United Nations. And it was done in part because in the late 80s and early 90s, the UN had a habit of convening high-level groups of welfare ministers and that sort of thing. And then they would write the high-level strategy for the next 10 years. And then a year out, they would send a letter to national governments or major NGOs and say, this is what we did two or three years ago. Can you tell whether any of it's filtering down to the local community and give us case examples of it working? Well, the particular year I'm referring to, they sent the same letter to university presidents And so our university president gets this letter he'd never seen before, didn't know what the hell it was all about. So he saw social welfare in it. So he passed it off to the dean of social work and said, you answer it for the university. And the dean looked at it and saw it had to do with international sort of social welfare. And he knew I was involved in that kind of work. I was his associate dean. And he handed it to me and says, you write it. I started to look at it, and it's 50 questions. Each question has to be at least a paragraph long in an answer. And I started trying to answer, and I couldn't do it. I was like a kid in school with classroom exams, and I looked at all the questions, and I I can answer number one, but not two or three or four, but I can get 10 or 12. So I'm just going to answer what I know something about and hope I'll get 50% out of this. (laughs) So anyway, I quit trying to answer them and said, okay, I'm just going to write to a case study about what we've been doing in suicide prevention in Alberta and California at the time. And so every question that allowed me to say something about this case study, then I answered it. And I finished it and we sent it off to the UN and that was it. (laughs) It was off my desk. Then we get a letter back from the UN, and it's not just, thank you very much, we'll take whatever you said into consideration. It went on page two, page three, page four, and in page two or three, they said, wow, you've pointed out an error in our thinking, and they actually used the language of, you know, we've sinned and we we want to repent. I'm saying, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) What were they referring to? So I had to read further, and what they were saying was is that, well, in the social policy side of the United Nations, we always thought that suicide was a mental health problem and that WHO was looking after it. But you wrote it in such a way that it's not only a mental health problem, it's a social welfare problem, it's an injury prevention problem, it's it's a multi-sector problem. And so... We want to amend our sin. And the offer was, will you put together 12 or 15 people, bring them to Alberta or Canada, use Canadian money that we know you got lots of, and use our template that says you've got seven days to write a national strategy guideline? Not asking a lot. No. And and they said, you can use our good name and our logo but we don't have any money, so don't ask us. (laughs) So Brian and I uh, spent the better part of a year trying to raise $50,000 so we could bring 15 people from 12 different countries. And so we brought them to Calgary in 1993, and we had them here in the city for two days, and all of them had to give a state-of-the-art paper on suicide in their country. And then we took them up to Banff in beautiful summer weather 
locked them into a building and says, you can look at the mountains, but you can't go out. You got work to do. Until we finish this. And we had four or five days left to um, write it. And uh, we did it and sent it back to the UN. They published it. And now it's the guideline for many countries around the world to use to develop their national strategy. And the U.S. did it quite deliberately through a, a survivor family. Scotland followed it. I think Australia followed it to a certain extent. That's another, for me, a huge feather in the cap of, of being able to have a practical impact and also to have a high-level policy impact. That's amazing. I knew about the gathering and the resulting papers that came out of that and the strategies that followed, but I didn't realize that it started with just this letter bouncing around your university and you looking at those elements and thinking, how can I actually answer this? Why don't I give them a case study example? That's that's an amazing link through. And it shows actually that people can do that and do stuff on the ground that can inform international policy. Yeah. And it really was, how can I get this thing off my desk? It was <laughs> <laughs> well, it comes back to your earlier point when you said to me, what you're doing now, you may not realize the impact of it in decades to come because at right. that time you were just getting it off your desk. But then look at how much it's actually influenced policies in different countries. Yeah, I mean, again, it's amazing how many times Australia comes back into this history. But when we were in Australia for those three weeks in 1996, I had met the father of a young physician daughter who had died by suicide several years earlier. And he was going to support groups and he and his wife and other members of the family. But it still wasn't working for him. And so two of the Americans who had been to our Calgary meetings, they went back with the draft that we had prepared. And somehow or another, the draft got into the hands of, of this man in Atlanta, Georgia. And he spent the next year going to the American Association of Suicidology, and he'd corner the leaders and say, do you know anything about this? And what do you think of the recommendations? And is it possible? And who's going to do it? And so they all said, yeah, we know something about it. And yes, it's feasible, but we haven't the slightest idea who's going to make it happen. So the survivor father said, okay, then the only people that I think that are going to be able to make this move are the ones who are affected by it. So I'm going to organize all of the survivor families around the United States, and we're going to march on Capitol Hill a year from now. I met him the following year at a conference in Phoenix, and he was a lone man standing at a table all by himself with a banner that looked like a bridge, and the title was Span. And I introduced myself, and I said, who are you? <laughs> and uh, he was doing likewise. And so he started telling me what he was up to. And as he was telling me, I looked down on this empty table, except for a piece of paper that was there. And I looked at it again. And I said, that's our draft. So I tried to be funny with him. But I said, what's that? And he said, well, that's what I'm telling you about. And I said, well, you can't. He says, why not? I says, because that's mine. And you can't talk about something that I own. And his immediate response was, oh, my God. He says, you're one of those Canadians. <laughs> And then he went on a few months later, we met again, and he told me his vision, his dream. 
about organizing all these people marching on Capitol Hill and, and getting this strategy going in the United States, which academics and policymakers before had tried and failed. So anyway, we're in Australia the next year. And this march that he was going to do was on Mother's Day in May. And May was the month that we were in Australia. We're in Wollongong. And on Wednesday morning or maybe Thursday morning, I'm having breakfast with the participants. I happen to be sitting beside this one guy. And he's telling everybody about what happened to him the night before. He said, I'm so overwhelmed with this suicide talk and it's so intense that I went home last night in terms of self-care and I was just going to turn on a sitcom and just maybe sit in the hot tub or something. He says, I turn on ABC and a news story out of Washington about a march on Capitol Hill about suicide prevention. So he was going on in the morning about, I couldn't even get away from it last night. Couldn't escape. (laughs) So then he turned to me and he said, do you know anything about this? And I said to myself, first of all, I said, yeah, I do actually. And I doubted that he could pull off what he said to me the September before. So I sent a plea for forgiveness, you know, as fast as I could to Washington. (laughs) And then I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do know something about it. This is what this guy said he was going to do last year. And he's done it. He's done it. And I got word of his success almost immediately sitting in a hotel in Wollongong, Australia. (laughs) That is amazing. uh, Yeah. And that march resulted in the national strategy in the States? Yeah, it was a big start. And then I found out later that all these people that were in this crowd And the story had to do with marching on Capitol Hill for suicide prevention because they were delivering petitions to the senators and so forth. Well, later on, I'm talking with one of our trainers who was there. He said, well, you know, the funny thing is, is that there weren't that many of us there, but there was another big march of people angry or whatever it was about something and the cameras caught that crowd and made it look like it was our crowd. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. And then that got beamed all over the world. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And it worked. But anyway, those are the two things that uh, I'll always take away from, from this whole experience. And then what they did in the U.S. then was he then organized a consensus conference and he got money from a pharmacy company. And he got the federal people involved. And so he organized a conference in Reno, Nevada, which happens to be the state where the Senate majority leader at the time was from. And he had revealed a personal tragedy in his life where his dad died by suicide when he was a freshman in university or something. And the family just shut it down. They wouldn't talk about it. And then he heard another national broadcast figure talk about his depression in in an open way. And so this senator said, well, if he can talk about that, then I guess I should talk about what happened to my family. And so he did. and, And he became a really strong supporter. So this conference that they organized was a long weekend from Thursday to Sunday. And instead of having 15 people like we had in Calgary and Banff, 
they had 450 people and they had to write a, a recommendation strategy to be delivered to the Surgeon General of the United States who was coming from Atlanta, Georgia, all the way out to Reno for one purpose only, to get this document. And Brian Tanny and I were there as observers, but we were also being supportive to the leaders because, especially the Americans, they had supported us when we thought there's no way we're going to get this finished in Banff. And they kept sort of nudging us on and saying, oh, let's keep going, keep going. So we were doing the same thing to them. And I had a meeting with the lead writer at midnight on Saturday. We had agreed to have coffee breaks every once in a while. He came out of the room and he said, I can't have a coffee break with you right now. I got 15 people in this room and it's like herding cats. There is no consensus in this room about the recommendations. I have no idea whether we're going to have something for the Surgeon General in the morning or not. And he left. The next morning, I'm sitting with another one of the Calgary people from the U.S. And we're biting our nails because the Surgeon General comes in. He's in full military uniform and his entourage of people. And he is escorted up to the front of the hall. All these people there. And we're sitting saying, where's Mort, the leader? <laughs> Finally... We see him come into the room and he has a piece of paper and it's like, well, I don't know what's on that paper, but at least it's something. It sounds like it's better than what he was looking at at midnight. The night before. <laughs> and I don't know when they, they agreed on it, but uh, there he was. So he had these recommendations. They were delivered to the Surgeon General. The Surgeon General thanked them and he actually thanked the United Nations strategy people in Alberta and he had taken a position before that where he was doing a major reform of the mental health policies for the country. And he had been petitioned to have a separate national strategy. And he kept saying, no way, you're not going to get a, it'll be inside the mental health strategy, but not independent. And everybody was worried because it was the same thing of saying, yeah, we're going to reform the healthcare system and mental health is going to be inside it. So we're going to give it attention and everybody knows, no, you're not. <laughs> you know, mental health is going to be put in the back room like it's always been. So anyway, he went back and a year later, he wrote a new document. And in this new document, he said, the U.S. is going to have its independent strategy that I realize now I was wrong and that it should have its own strategy. <laughs> and so that was 1999. And two years later, the U.S., announced its first national strategy, 10-year national strategy. And it all traced back to this one survivor family member and his family, which then traced back to the UN document that we wrote in Banff and that he had a draft of. <laughs> wow. That is a powerful chain of events, but also shows the passion of personal experience once motivated and mobilized. Yeah. Nothing can stop them from getting to that result. And then backed by evidence, policy, practice. What a beautiful combination. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, it was really quite remarkable. And uh, he developed what was called SPAN, which was the Suicide Prevention Advocacy Network. And that was all tied to getting a national strategy. Once that was done, then they changed the name to, well, they didn't change the name. They kept SPAN, 
but they changed A from advocacy to action. So now they're pressed on with all kinds of survivor type of support and so forth. And, and that's still active and alive in the US. And, and again, for me, uh, although I've been involved in international social work and, and at fairly senior levels internationally, but you still have that small town, rural village mentality that I grew up in. And, and so there's some days when you pinch yourself and say, well, how could a, you know, a kid from Timbuktu village <laughs> have the kind of experiences that I've been privileged to, to have and be part of over these years? So it's a, it's a humbling kind of, uh, of reflection. <laughs> uh, but it's also motivating to say, to say, well, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter what size of town or village you come from, um, you take on something that really means something, then you might do things that you never thought you could do. <laughs> exactly. And come across people and places you never thought you'd be or couldn't really imagine. So Richard, a final thought we ask everyone on A World Where Living Works is what gives you hope for the future when it comes to suicide and its prevention? Now, whenever I've asked you that question off the air in between recordings, you've always come back to those individual interactions with Living Works trainers over the years and the connection you've shared with so many and what you've learned from each other. Listeners, let me give you a bit of context on the story we're going to share with you to round out the episode and the series. Unsure of the source, Richard's actually been telling this story for years now about this nurse helping a young Norwegian sailor. So apparently their ship was docked in the harbour and he was having some sort of mental health difficulty and she ended up being the community nurse that was called. She did an assist type of intervention and they were able to get in touch with his doctor back in Norway. And just as she started talking the doctor through her assessment and why she thought the young man might be at risk of suicide, he cut into the conversation and said, oh, you've been trained. And she thought he was kind of talking down to her from a doctor to a nurse. And even though he couldn't see her, the doctor could feel the bristles on the back of her neck, but he caught it right away and he said, no, 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 I don't mean that. I mean, you've been assist trained and so have I. And from there, it was an instant rapport between the two of them working together to help this young man. Well, I actually heard the story from some source. I don't even remember when, but it's probably a good 10 or maybe even 15 years old. And so I was at the Newfoundland conference, I think it was three years ago, and I was telling this story because I didn't know who this nurse was. It was just a phantom nurse. <laughs> and Cheryl, when she started to hear the story, she stuck up her hand and said, that's me. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> and so that's the first time I actually realized who, who had actually been the nurse involved in that helping incident. <laughs> Great example of a story. Can you imagine how she was feeling as she was listening? She was like, hang on, that sounds familiar. Wait, that's me. Yeah. You're talking about me. And then a few years on, you were just telling me how you caught up recently and received a package in the mail. Tell us about that. Well, that's uh, uh, Cheryl and I have been in discussion ever since the last face-to-face -face meeting in Newfoundland in 2019. And we got to talking about our common interests in Bucky Fuller and geometric thinking and that sort of thing. And so we've carried on our discussion every so often uh, for most of the last year and a half. 
she's an artistic person, so she's also drawing graphs and different kinds of graphic ideas around what we were discussing. And so it was a couple of months ago, she said, I'm going to send you something. I have a parcel for you. And then I said, fine. <laughs> and then shortly after that, she wrote another note saying, oh, my gosh, something's happened. I can't send it to you right away. Uh, there'll be a delay. So I had no idea what that was, of course. And then a week and a half or so ago, she got me, sent me a note saying, okay, it's on its way. It's coming snail mail. And the tracking says that it'll be here on September 3rd. But on Monday, it arrived. And she had told me on the, the email that there was going to be an envelope in the package and that I needed to open the actual package first and then look at the envelope. And so when I got the, the parcel, there was also a note on the card to, with the same instruction. Like, do so, not read the card first. Don't read the card first. So, uh, so that's what we did. And she had it really tightly wrapped, securely wrapped. So it took us a while to sort of find our way into it. And when we finally opened it up, we actually opened up the back. So the back told me the story of this idea of procession that Bucky Fuller talked about a lot. And I always talk about it as being the important part of being in sync in the PAL model, because it's that relationship between the helper and the person at risk that once they get in sync, then they create emotion that is perpendicular 90 degrees to their axis. So it actually goes from problem to solution or from focus on death to focus on living. And uh, so as soon as I saw that, well, I understood kind of what might be in the picture, but it didn't dawn on me <laughs> as to what that might be. And so when I flipped it over and I saw the bumblebee and the flower, I thought, oh my gosh, I, I know exactly what this is all about. And then we went to the envelope. And of course, that really was an emotional read to to uh, read the words of of her granddaughter, who who uh, had been working with her her nanny in her art studio. And uh, on that particular occasion, I guess uh, uh, Cheryl had had left it in the studio, and of course went to bed that particular night. And her granddaughter all ready to send to you, all ready to send. And her granddaughter was there visiting, and so she got up early in the morning and went in and uh, added a few things. Stars and butterflies, I think is what she said. You can just, anyone with kids and grandkids can absolutely picture that. Some oh, yeah. kid going, oh, I'm going to help nanny. And, and so being so proud of it, and of course, I, you can visualize the shock in, <laughs> in nanny's face when she saw what happened, and then, of course... A mortified mother was <laughs> is a real vision that you can experience about, yeah. oh, my gosh. <laughs> and then looking down at the child who's so happy with themselves, you, you can, yeah, you can see the whole scene playing out. Yeah, and, and she, she certainly had the right expression for her grandmother <laughs> saying that, uh, oh, you, would, you love it, don't you, Grandma? <laughs> <laughs> what kind of response could you give to that other than saying yes? <laughs> Beautiful collaboration. Yeah, so it was, it was really a beautiful message. And as I said uh, back to her, I immediately thought that I had to frame that reply. And so we went to a framing store right away that afternoon. And so it will be a little frame that will go with the bumblebee picture. 
That message, inspired by Bucky Fuller, read, Seemingly inadvertently, the honeybee goes about his business of gathering honey. At 90 degrees to his body in his flight path, his legs gather pollen from one flower and accidentally take this pollen to the next flower and the next, resulting in cross-pollination. The outcome of this seemingly inadvertent accident is that the bee contributes enormously to life on Earth. We get pollination, the growth of crops, the sustaining of life for humans and animals. Richard, thank you for being our honeybee and pollination of wisdom. Cheryl. And in so many ways, you know, you're talking about the hope, but the hope is really that current trainers and new trainers and future trainers will continue to be sort of the, the bumblebee pollinators of something new and a focus on living. I think it's perfect. And it fits too with the idea of being in sync is the importance of the relationship. And right now, so often we try and turn the notion of a relationship into a thing rather than the dynamic of the relationship itself. And so that really is another big hope on my part that people will become more comfortable with the idea of it's the tension an interconnection between people that really is going to uh, open the spaces for new opportunities, recovery from things like trauma, and growth through the experience of suicide, if that's part of someone's life experience. So it's really the the importance of treating the, the relationship as part of the stretch and fold of living well. Thank you so much for joining us. Richard, since this is our last episode in this series together, I really just wanted to thank you so much for your time and insights. And on behalf of the trainers who are listening as well, the hope that you inspire. So thank you very much. I wish we could keep talking for another six episodes. Maybe on the 40th anniversary, we'll meet up again and have some more chats. But thank you so much for everything that you shared across this series. Well, it's been such a pleasure and a welcome opportunity to to spend these sessions with you and to share the journey and the story of Living Works from the time that we first thought about it, what we might be able to do back in the early 1980s and all the way through all of the trainers that have been part of that journey, uh, those that have retired, those that are no longer with us, those that are veterans and continue to be active trainers, and those who will become part of that training journey in the future. It's been such a pleasure to, to spend some time with you. Well, that's a wrap on this very special series of A World Where Living Works with co-founder Richard Ramsey. I hope all of you listening, especially staff, trainers, and fans of Living Works programs around the world, have enjoyed hearing some of Richard's stories as much as I have. It's been so great to learn about the evolution of Living Works and the training methodologies used in so many countries, workplaces, and communities. Thank you so much for listening. See you again soon for the next season of A World Where Living Works. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love you to subscribe on the usual channels, write a five-star review, and most importantly, share it with your family, friends, and colleagues on social media, tagging Living Works. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. 
Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. A reminder that if this episode has brought up tough emotions for you, talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you're feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you.